This is The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, a podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. You don't have to be a football fan to love Rudy. It's the story of an undersized, unathletic kid making his way to Notre Dame to play football for the Fighting Irish. Truly remarkable. What's almost as remarkable is the story behind the making of the movie, a story that required the same level of perseverance. If you've seen Rudy, you can probably guess what type of person the real Daniel Rudy Rudiger was. Five foot six, dyslexic, a former Navy yeoman, always hardworking with big dreams and the motivation to make those dreams a reality. It's why when he first decided he wanted to turn his life story into a film, it was a matter of when and not if. When I saw the movie Rocky, man, that hit me hard in a good way. Like, wow. Uh, just his work ethic, his preparation, and his low self-esteem, where he came from, and his friends he put around him. All those little things, that's that's Rudy, that's me, you know? And I'm going, wow. Then all of a sudden, and I looked back at Notre Dame, how the heck did that happen, right? How did I get there? Why did I get there? Where did this all come from? From here, the whole movie just came to Rudy. He didn't sit down and actually write the script. He would leave that part to the professionals. He did, however, start to carve out the main beats of the story, the different moments and inevitable failures in his life that led to where he is now. And all these little things started adding up, and all of a sudden, movie time. I have to go out to Hollywood. And that's exactly what Rudy did. Well, kind of. Right off the bat, Rudy wanted Angelo Pizzo to write this film. You might remember Angelo from episode two of this season. He wrote Hoosiers, and Rudy Rudiger loved Hoosiers. I mean, who doesn't? He thought Angelo would be the perfect man to write his story. Rather than taking his idea to Angelo's agent, Rudy decided to do something a little different. He would enlist the help of an unlikely ally. Here's Angelo. He found out that the brother of the guy who was our basketball coordinator was a manager at a hotel nearby, and he got through him and then all of a sudden I got a call from this coordinator um, who's a good friend of ours. And he told the story about Rudy. And I, you know, I said, uh, you know, he, he, he sort of pitched it to David and myself. My first response was I was absolutely not interested at all for a couple of reasons. One is we just made a sports movie in Indiana. I don't want to talk about being nitified. I did, was really thinking that was the wrong career move, okay? Uh, and number two, uh, I grew up in Bloomington. I hated Notre Dame. I, I always was rooting against them, you know? And I always thought the people who went to Notre Dame were arrogant and uh, full of themselves and thinks they, they all graduate from God's university, that kind of thing. So... I just wasn't interested, but David grew up in Fort Wayne and he was intrigued by the story. This was the first obstacle of many, but if you've seen the movie, you'll know that Rudy never gives up. Rudy and David started talking and they talked a lot. While they talked, David would pass on much of what Rudy was pitching to Angelo. He tried to convince him there was something there, but Angelo wouldn't relent. He actually came out to LA or to Santa Monica and I agreed to meet him for lunch, and I totally forgot about it. Yep, Angelo left Rudy high and dry. But just like his approach to football, Rudy wouldn't give up on finding a way to pitch his script. The mailman that I found in Santa Monica helped me get to his house because he and I shared a little moment 
of gratitude together because I thanked him for his smile. And he liked me. I liked him. And then I convinced him. I said, that Angelo Pizzo, you know where he lives? Oh, yeah. I'll take you to his house. So Rudy gets to Angelo's house and knocks on the door. Angelo is still asleep, and he sort of shuffles over to the front door, opens it, and sees Rudy standing there. Rudy introduces himself and politely reminds Angelo they were supposed to meet up for lunch. So we went up and had lunch, and he said, look, Rudy, I'm not going to do this. I, I just don't want to write it. I don't feel it. I don't have it. Uh, it's not in me. And um, he said, um, well, do you have another writer? Can you help me out? And really sweet guy. Rudy is a very, really like Rudy. But, uh, uh, you know, I said, I think about it. I, I really couldn't think of anybody at the time. So that was I still kept on hearing from him, but it wasn't, you know, in this with the same intensity. I, I think that was probably another year that went by. And I got a call from David and say, listen, you've got to do me a huge, huge favor. And he described what happened. He had a meeting with um, two producers, uh, Rob Fried and Kerry Woods, about a baseball script, something in another sports movie. And they, they started spinning yarns about different sports stories that should be movies. And David told him the Rudy story. It's worth mentioning that the president of Columbia Pictures at the time was a man named Frank Price. Frank was a huge Notre Dame football fan. He even applied to Notre Dame three times and never got in. He was the perfect person to pitch the movie to. So David convinces Angelo to come along with him to the pitch meeting, and all he'll have to do is sit there. He doesn't have to do anything but be physically present. And David pitched the only time this has ever happened. So I went in there and sat, and, and uh, you know, during uh, 99% of every pitch meeting I've ever been in, at the end of the meeting, the person who listens to the pitch said, thank you very much. You know, we'll discuss this among ourselves and let you know, because he had three vice presidents in there with him. And uh, this was the only time this happened. And when David finished his pitch and he did a great job. And uh, and Frank Price leaned over the, the desk and he said, I can't wait to see this movie. Good luck, guys. It was like, holy shit. I, that, does that mean I have to write this? Yep. Angelo wrote it and brought Rudy's story to the page. But to get it to the screen, they'd need to find the perfect actor to play the underdog. The two actors that they really wanted at that time that were really big were Brendan Fraser and Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell read the script and flipped out. He was a Catholic boy. He went to Boston College and was uh, just just absolutely flipped out for the script. And we had a meeting with him. I remember David and I looking at each other and saying, God, he's such a good looking guy. Six one. This is like nothing like the little schlub that Rudy is and the character that I wrote. I mean, it, it just like this is a guy that you walk into a room with six people and, and you rec- remember the other five. You know, that that's who Rudy is. That's not Chris O'Donnell. So um, someone suggested to David uh, to go look at I think it was Encino Man at the time. And we, we, David and I went to see, Sean was in that, and we thought, wow, his kind of chirpy little energy was just felt right for it. So we had a meeting with him, unbeknownst to the studio. I remember uh, Sean walking in, and within five minutes, it was like, he's Rudy. He's flat out Rudy. Everything about him. He was all can do. You know, the, the, two, the two things that I, I really feel that were similar to those two guys um, that the, they were, they, they had similar characteristics as 
negativity didn't mean anything to him. I always describe Rudy as fundamentally incapable of hearing the word no. And Sean was kind of like that too. He was just like always moving forward, always moving forward, how to find the positive and the negative and moving, moving forward. Uh, and uh, so we fought and fought and fought and we, we finally won. Rudy loved everything about Sean Astin and wanted him to play the part from the very beginning. He just connected with me, his energy. Uh, I think the uh, uh, fact that he was uh, somewhat of a uh, underdog type of character, uh, a guy who was trying to prove himself all the time. It then came time to cast the football players. And just as Angelo and David had done for Hoosiers, they wanted to make a point of casting actual football players. But for this movie, that was easier said than done. Despite their best efforts, they really struggled to find a quarterback who could throw the football and deliver six or seven lines of dialogue adequately. So I remember the casting director kept on sending me different tapes of different people. And I remember it coming, coming down to like two or three people. And the guy I liked had never seen before was a guy named Vince Vaughn. And Vince claimed that he was an all honorable mention, all state football player. And we decided, I said, okay, let's just go with him. So he shows up. We take him out in the, on the practice field, and boy, he could not throw a football to save his life. And we knew we immediately had to change everything. So we switched him to halfback, and then we cut two or three of his scenes. He tells a story on the talk show circuit about how we dissed him. But uh, the, the real the, the serendipitous thing for him was he and John Favreau uh, roomed right next to each other became good friends, and then wrote a movie together called Swingers. So that changed the career of both of their lives. The movie is cast, and it's time to shoot. Now, up until this time, only one movie had ever been granted permission to shoot on the Notre Dame campus. And you can guess what that movie was. The 1940 Newt Rockney All-American. They even got permission to shoot the football sequences on the field at the actual Notre Dame Stadium. We hired an NFL Films guy. So we wanted, we, we had a, a kind of an aesthetic that we wanted, we didn't want to be on the field, you know, looking up at the, you know, the, we didn't want the point of view of the quarterback. We, everything we shot was off the field. So it simulated the, the language of what NFL films had first brought to us on television. The filmmakers had to shoot at halftime of real football games. This meant they only had seven minutes to get what they needed. It also meant that during one of these sequences, the scoreboard read Notre Dame versus Penn State. Why is that interesting? The two schools never actually faced off against each other in 1975. Everything you saw that we shot in terms of Rudy running on the field and the tackle, uh, that was all, all shot with five cameras going during that seven minutes. Tremendous amount of pressure. We had to get lucky with the weather, too, because uh, we had a backup game the following week, uh, which was Penn State. And we had missed some things in that first go around and we were preparing to do the whole thing all over again. And it snowed like a foot that day. So we couldn't do it. We couldn't shoot at all. So, yeah, I mean, luck was a big part of it. The action was crisp, the crowd electric, and the final sequence as emotional as the real life Rudy could have hoped. And when it was released on October 15th of 1993, it made less than a million dollars in its opening weekend. But word of the film slowly started to spread, and in its second weekend, it made over $5 million. Rarely in Hollywood does a film make more in its second weekend than it does in its first. 
Unlike many of the other films we've looked at so far in this series, including Cool Runnings, Miracle, and Ali, pretty much no one outside of those involved knew the real story of Daniel Rudy Rudiker before this film was released. The movie was their entry into the story. Despite this, Angelo still wanted the film to maintain the spirit of the truth. But as we've explained before in this season, if you want to tell the most compelling story possible, you just have to be willing to simplify things a little bit. Here's Rudy again. I wanted to represent the other dudes in my life that were kind of like naysayers and, and didn't believe in you. And so I took my one brother, said, we're going to composite you, make you a tough guy, a mean guy. He said, go ahead. So those, uh, he represented like five different type of high school buddies who put you down, who made you feel bad, coaches who made you feel bad, friends who made you feel bad, guys at work who made you feel bad. All those things represented that. He represented that. But you can't develop all that in a movie. It's impossible. So that's why you need a good writer to interpret what you and I are now talking about to put them into a character. For instance, Rudy's background as a Navy yeoman, never mentioned in the movie. It's because the filmmakers wanted to show how hard Rudy is working to pay his tuition and maintain adequate grades, while also trying to earn his spot on the team. In reality, Rudy didn't have to pay for college at all, at either Holy Cross or Notre Dame due to the GI Bill. There were also parts of the movie that were fabricated to allow certain scenes to be more cinematic than they otherwise would have been. I'll give you an example of something that didn't happen that uh, that people talk about and sometimes negatively, and that's the the, the uniform when they lay, laid the uniforms in front of uh, Coach Devine's desk, and that upset uh, Coach Devine too. But what had happened was that at that particular for that particular game, a number of the seniors went up to the defensive coordinator, Joe Yanto, and offered up their jerseys so Rudy could dress. And by the way, I know you're wondering, the real player who eventually gave up his uniform for Rudy was Pat Sorb. He was a defensive back. Rather than have two guys, three guys walking and knocking on a door, I thought the visual correlative that would work much more powerfully is to have it in the head coach and then have players actually put their jerseys on. Visually, it's much more compelling But to me, it still adheres to the spirit of the truth, if not to the letter of the truth. While Coach Devine didn't have a huge issue with this scene, apart from noting that if it did happen in real life, none of these players would have seen their jersey again, he was upset about his general portrayal in the film. This is despite the fact that Angelo had actually sent him the script beforehand. He saw in advance that his character was the heavy in the story, and he was seemingly fine with it. He and his entire family went to... Uh, a screening of it in St. Louis where he lived. And um, apparently his family was really upset because it made him look like made him to their eyes, made him look really bad. And, and that upset him. So he had he got a phone call from a New York times reporter asking about his response to the movie. And he kind of went off. Well, that never happened. And he never mentioned that he'd already read the script and, and already re- gave us the approval to go forward to it. And, and I actually called up that New York Times reporter and told him that, but they never corrected that. Uh, so it was sort of a burr under his saddle for a long time, but nothing ever came of it. The moment in the film where the villainy is on full display is in the final sequence. You remember it, Rudy standing on the sidelines and everyone in the crowd starts chanting, Rudy, Rudy. I'm doing it out of the side of my mouth the way the coach does it in the film. Rudy, Rudy. 
Now, during the scene, Coach Devine seems to have no interest in sending him in. And he's finally pressured into doing so by the other players. But that wasn't quite true either. In reality, Coach Devine wanted Rudy to play. He was just waiting for the right moment. There was a minute left in the game, and the student body started chanting Rudy. Now, if you started chanting the student body section, you could bet it's going to go through that stadium. Whatever the students do, the, the, the fans will do. When this happened, the real-life coach, Devine, was so determined to get Rudy onto the field, he tried to send him in while Notre Dame was on offense. But Rudy wouldn't go. Listen, I practice defense. I know I'm not going on offense. But anyway, we score with 27 seconds left. And now, you know, the clock is not on your side, man. And you go on the kickoff, and the kicker kicks the ball out of the end zone. Now they put it on the 10-yard line, 15-yard, wherever they put it. Remember, there were two plays prior. In the movie, we showed one. That's right. Rudy was on the field for a total of three plays, not two as we see in the film. And when the ball was snapped and the, as the clock ended, uh, I got Rudy Allen, and I pushed him in the Jay Atterhoff. So we both had – I got the tackle, but Jay, you know, was right there. Great guy, defensive tackle. And remember, he was so excited – Man, you did it, man. And all of a sudden, Teddy Bergmeier and, and Howard Meyer and Ronnie Collins come on. They pick me up. And I'm embarrassed. I said, dude, what are you doing? I said, I, I just felt embarrassed that they were picking me up because that's not what happens at Notre Dame, right? It just doesn't happen. But to carry me off the field, this is not a joke, guys, you know, because some guys, I'm sure Montana took it as a joke, I'm sure. But it wasn't. Uh, but those are real moments. Those moments changed a lot of people's lives. Now, Rudy mentioned the great Hall of Fame quarterback, Joe Montana. You know his resume, four-time Super Bowl champion, two-time MVP. He was a freshman on that Notre Dame team. For some reason, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Montana's actually come out in interviews saying Rudy was never carried off by the players. It was all a fabrication. The reality was it was true. I think he was just trying to be perverse and, and kind of he was being negative a snide about the movie and about Rudy and how he was a jerk and uh, never happened. Well, it did happen. You know, we have footage of it. Yes, the tackle happened. Yes, the carryoff happened. Yes, the crowd chanted Rudy, the student body. Not everybody, you know, but there were enough people who recognized that that were excited about that. Rudy was released on VHS in May of 94. At the time, Blockbuster would house as many copies of the film as were commensurate with how the film did at the box office. Rudy's numbers, as mentioned before, were adequate, but not huge. We had one shelf, let's say, out of like, I don't know, maybe 50 shelves. Well, the second week, it was like two shelves. And then it was like a whole shelf. So it kept on building and building. People started to watch it and... and I used to do this. I don't do this anymore. I, if I would ever get a give a talk about Rudy or, or, or anything general, I would ask the people, how many people saw it in the theater? How many people saw it on video? And hardly anybody saw it in the theater, but it, they, uh, but they, they saw it. And I don't know, it became a word of mouth thing through video and then DVD. And, and, and it became a term popular culture, you know, someone's a Rudy and, and I, I, no one could ever expect that. I didn't see that coming. And, and how it's sustained in popular culture. And I'll, I'll give you another example of how weird things are, okay? 
in 2001, USA Today, did the top football movies of all time. Rudy was number 18 in 2001. In 2020, they did it again. Rudy was number one. Now, how did it get better over those 20 years? Is that crazy or what? Rudy is a story that preaches perseverance and hard work. For the real-life Daniel Rudy Rudiger, that is the everlasting legacy of this film. If you just don't give up, look what could happen. If you just keep preparing every day, look what's happening. Look if you surround yourself with people who push you through the dark moments. As long as you know what you want, you can get it. Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen. When I make movies that are more personal, on some level, I don't care as much whether they do well or not because that wasn't necessarily the intention. Whereas when you're making a movie like Remember the Titans where like its sole purpose is to be successful and connect in that way, if it doesn't, you feel like you're really f***ed up, you know? The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.